Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, it depends where you live, but as I tape this, it's mid-August, and school starts for most kids within weeks. Now, that might mean going back in person, it might mean going back and being online, or it might mean a mix of the two. Or, depending when you hear this, it might mean that school started in the 2021 year, but was ended again because COVID-19 was not under control in some areas at least. So as we work through all of this, parents are going to have huge challenges managing their work lives, going to have huge challenges managing their kids' education, and the kids are going to have gigantic challenges as well. You know, this generation of students is going through something that their parents never had to go through. So. In some ways, that means they're going to be scarred or marked for life, for good or bad. And in terms of their work lives, we have to wonder what they're going to take from this experience and how it will impact how they work for the rest of their lives. Well, our guest today is Rebecca Holmes. She's the president of the Colorado Education Initiative. Now, even before this pandemic, she led that state's work on finding areas for innovation, innovation aimed at preparing students for learning, work, and life in the 21st century. And she has an interesting background herself. She actually started her life as a middle school teacher. So she has some interesting views on what this year might bring and how it may challenge people, but how people may end up better for it. You know, she's something of an optimist, as we're all trying to be right now. So a really interesting conversation. Please stay with us. So we're about to start a new school year, and it's the strangest year most of us have ever experienced. Kids will be in school in some cases. In many others, they're going to be home, still learning, but their parents are going to be helping them do that. Everyone's doing their best to get it all done in terms of work, education, and really building a future out of this. So what is that future going to hold for the kids when they finally get to the workforce? And how will it impact their parents' lives, what's going on right now? Because we have to talk about the now of work as well as the future of work. Now, lots of threads to this. And to talk about all of it, I'm joined now by Rebecca Holmes. Now, she's the president of the Colorado Education Initiative. She has a lots of a lot of thoughts on all of the pieces of it. She joins us now from Denver, Colorado. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Linda. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, I'm glad you're here because there is a lot to talk about. Um, But, you know, before we even get to some of the issues, this is a podcast about work and work lives. So I like to ask people, how did you get to where you are? Because you started, I believe, as a teacher. I've had a bit of a hybrid career back and forth between K-12 education and more traditional business where I was a management consultant. Um, Really started my career, to your point, as an educator, a middle school educator, seventh and eighth grade. Uh, Most people roll their eyes. It's not as parents, many people's favorite age, uh, but it was mine. And I just became really fascinated by not just what happened in my classroom, but all the systems and structures of education around that. I had a terrific mentor who encouraged me to go to business school instead of education policy school. And so I've been able um, in the best moments to take the best of business thinking and apply it to the the design decisions and policy decisions that we make in K-12 education. Lots of decisions to make right now. You're with the Colorado Education Initiative. Can you just tell us briefly what that is? 
Yeah, so we're pretty unusual. We're a nonprofit third party that was built to have a privileged sort of special relationship with the Colorado Department of Education, our state's state education agency, rather. And we work with about a third of the school districts in the state of Colorado who are really focused on innovation and improvement efforts. And we help them um, with technical assistance efforts and policy efforts to accelerate what they're trying to get done in their schools. So we've spent more than the last decade focused on how we update K-12 education to be more aligned with and produce young people who are ready for the future of work and the future of life. And right now, that must seem like it was an easy job because <laughs> a lot of challenges here. Well, let's talk about this year. This is crazy. Um, you know, we don't live in the same place. I'm actually based in Canada and Toronto. You're in a one state in the U.S. Every state has different challenges, and so does every country. From the kids' side of this, what are the things we have to do to set them up for success coming out of this year? Because you know, they're all going to be have be on different paths. But are there things that we can do for all of them? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting year because so much of the young person's experience, so much of learning has been pushed into the home. Um, And I think as parents, I am one myself, we've been able to, you know, believe that the school was taking care of so many things uh, that now we have a front row seat to with our own kids. And, you know, one thing I'm really focused on is the fact that we have an opportunity in our homes right now to really create the conditions and the scaffolding for how young people experience this moment. It is volatile. It is disruptive. It is not exactly what any of them expected their school year to look like or their summer to look like. But we set the tone as parents for how this school year starts. And I think too often we look to our schools to do that and forget that um, in our case in the U.S., we say the only thing more powerful than the public education system to shape the future of our democracy is how we parent. And so there's a, a pressure on parents right now, but there's also an incredible opportunity to scaffold this moment for young people and help them see it as um, an opportunity to be ready for a much more volatile and rapidly changing world, which is the one they'll go into and that maybe their schools weren't particularly built for. Yeah, I'm a parent as well. And I've noticed this, that school has become, or maybe always was, so important. We look for it to be babysitting, uh, a place to socialize, place to do activities. Are we rethinking all of that? You know, I've been in meetings in the last few weeks where those of us who've been in education policy for two and three decades are saying it feels like the social contract between families and schools is completely up for reinterpretation. Uh, And I don't know that we know yet where we'll end on that. Many people in schools say that we have, over the decades, asked schools to do too many things and to serve too many Uh, roles that other community organizations might be better off playing. And we're really seeing that right now. We're seeing the way that we rely on schools for meals, for socialization, for mental health provision, um, to be a, a, a fabric in a community And we've seen heroic things from educators in our state and across the country and and frankly, across North America in the last six months to maintain that kind of stability for families. But I think, you know, shame on us if the way we do school looks the same when we come out of this as it did when we went into it in March. You know, I've been trying to think ahead to what this means for the future of work, because whatever experience you go through as a young person, it kind of marks you one way or the other. 
parents are really worried that kids are going to be falling behind in calculus or English or whatever. But I see that this can really be a positive thing for the kids if it's handled well, that they can, you know, gather other skills. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, absolutely. I talk to parents almost every day who share that worry. And when it is tightly expressed around content, I really try to redirect them. You know, if, if you have a student who's behind in basic skills, absolutely, that should be your concern. But I would say the things that are an opportunity right now and the, and the skills we should be worried about sometimes require us to flip that. It's less about worrying that we're going to miss a few months of content like calculus or geography and more about thinking of what is and isn't possible when school goes virtual. I'm far more worried, for example, that my my own children and students I care about don't have a way to be in collaborative work experiences right now. If all of their learning is direct between them and a teacher or them by themselves, I'm much more worried about how we get them collaborative experiences than I am about specific content experience. The other thing I'm thinking a lot about right now is passion-driven and project-based learning. So I think in most families, it's a misnomer to say kids haven't learned anything in the last five months. I have watched young people pursue passions, learn how to manage their time, get incredible um, independence, and gain all sorts of new skills about how to pursue learning related to something they're really deeply and uniquely interested in. And if we get that moment right, actually, I think we create lifelong learners and then if we've missed a few months of calculus, they become much more um, able to drive their own self-agency to figure that out. Yeah, it's interesting you say they don't have the same opportunities for collaboration. You know, that's something we hear all the time about people working remotely in general. Uh, I think going forward, we're going to have this workforce where people work a lot of different ways. So I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing that we're not on the same path we've always been on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about that with my own team. I've got a small staff and we can come together and, you know, it's Colorado, so we can come together outdoors uh, much of the year, at least right now, uh, and figure out how the pieces that we're missing virtually, which have a lot more to do with our creative collisions and our kind of team culture, we can get that as a shot in the arm every 30 days. Uh, and we don't need to have it every day and pay for an expensive, you know, office suite downtown. I'm interested in how we do that for young people too, right? Just because they can't be together necessarily in a 30 student classroom doesn't mean they couldn't be coming together in really interesting ways to work on projects together, or even doing that in a virtual setting, which we're starting to see in some schools as they plan this school year. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you think this too, that the problem here, one of the problems was nobody had any prep time. So, you know, in March, whenever it was, they had to scramble. Do you expect to see a different experience as we, we get into September? I do. You know, it really varies depending on the resources and the planning of any given school or school system. Um, But in the best systems, they absolutely took this summer to think deeply about what kind of learning is best done virtually, what kind of learning can be leveraged by the flipped classroom concept, um, where maybe we finally get out of the trope of the boring lecture. Uh, and so we're, I think we're going to see some real breakthrough practices this year. One of the challenges is that it requires the role of the teacher to really be different than it's been for probably the last four or five decades. So that's a workforce that I think is going to be significantly disrupted by this. And and the roles of teachers will be, I think, pulled apart into many different specialties. 
So we're going into this fall with all these ambitions and hopefully, you know, we can get this right for the kids. This is a whole new role for parents. And the majority of parents are workers one way or the other. We have to talk about the present of work. How is this playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think every working parent I know, uh, and I'd say mothers in particular, because for as far as we co- as we've come, the burden of childcare planning still tends to fall on uh, women more than men, are sort of at a nine out of a ten at a, at their stress level right now. As employers, I think there's a lot we can do to recognize that and think about the fact that uh, for many of our teams, people are inheriting a childcare challenge they've never seen before. Um, in, in many cases, that's coming with costs that they hadn't planned for. And at least in our case in the U.S., the federal government intervention only right now helps people who decide the best choices to work less. If you're an employer who has people who don't want to make that choice, can't make that choice, or you just you know, have a, have a big year ahead and want to create opportunities where people can continue to work at the same pace and at the same, uh, same schedule, I think it's incumbent on employers right now to think about carrying some of that childcare cost for their employees. And that, that's something many of us didn't plan for. But if we want people to be focused, I think it'll go a long way, at least for the next, you know, 90 to 120 days. Well, that's a big ask right now, because a lot of companies are definitely struggling. And if you say they didn't plan for this, and I wonder if you get any pushback from people without kids. We've thought about that too, you know, even in our industry where it's sort of table stakes that people care about young people, uh, it does feel like a bit of an unfair benefit. But at the same time, if it means that your colleagues can remain 100% focused on their role, at least in our organization, in our industry, people tend to, to come along on the benefit of that pretty quickly. Is there anything else that, you know, you'd like to see from the employer side of this? You know, I think where we can have flexible work schedules, of course, that is making um, a big difference for families. And in some places, we're even seeing large employers think about how they match uh, work schedules to the hybrid schedule of the local school district. And so if someone has said, if a school district has said, look, we'll have, you know, this half of the students on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then this other half on Thursdays and Fridays, in, in towns where you've got a large single employer or a large industry with a handful of flagship employers, we're starting to see conversations where people are saying, okay, well, let's think about the role alike matching where folks can kind of flex in to an office on the days where they do have childcare and be back virtual on the days where they don't. So, you know, that's, that's easier to do where you've got one large company, one large industry who can partner with a school system in that way. But it's interesting to start to see those kind of community solutions. It'd be interesting if we could make that work. You know, it's like we're moving to this environment where it's no longer one size fits all, like one school day, one work day. Do you think that will last after this? Well, that's what we've been pushing for in education for at least a decade and probably more. Um, and what's been challenging is to be honest, in K-12 education, we've lacked the disruptive event to create demand for that. You know, our school systems across North America and, and other parts of the world as well were really built for um, an era where we taught to the middle. Um, we planned for high schools to have a 40% dropout rate. And guess what? In many places, that's still about what they have. And it really was about readying kids for industries that no longer exist. Um, and now, you know, those of us who've been working on pushing individualized learning or personalized learning inside that system, 
while this disruption has a lot of trauma to process for young people and for families, it also presents this incredible uh, moment that I don't think in K-12 education we thought we would ever see, where the conversations about personalized learning, about young people pursuing their own cadence or their own cycle time for learning or pursuing their own passions, designing their own high school curriculum, suddenly feel much more possible to people than they did than that did six months ago. It's interesting. This is not the first time I've heard this. People say the pandemic's horrible. Would never have wanted this to happen. However, we wouldn't have had this opportunity if we didn't have this huge, huge event. So it'll be interesting. It's not just like one industry that will have to transform here. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about parenting because even if there wasn't a pandemic, uh, working parenthood has not been the easiest thing for almost anybody. What was the state of it even before the pandemic to you? Well, you know, it, it's it's so interesting. I think we see parenting trends come by generation, right? And we are just learning so much about Gen Z as they hit the workforce. And I don't think we know yet exactly how they've um, experienced their parents and experienced a really disruptive set of years in our culture. You know, this is a, a set of young people who've never, at least in the United States, they've never known a time where there hasn't been sort of war and increased political discord. Um, what's great about Gen Z is that the early research on them shows that on two really important future ready skills, resilience and compassion, uh, they actually score higher than two or three of the generations before them. Now, does that mean they were parented for those things or was it just sort of in the zeitgeist? It may be too soon to know. Um, but I also think as, as parents, we, you know, a, a researcher that I love in the space talks about we try to create these bonsai plants out of our children where they're perfectly pruned um, instead of realizing that one of the best things we can do is scaffold them to the edge of their independence. And that's another thing I think is a real opportunity inside the pandemic. You know, in, in Gen X parenting circles, people are joking that today's young people will turn out more like us, you know, a little hardened by some benign neglect um, because we were defined as the latchkey generation. And I don't mean to make light of it. There's a lot to be worried about for families who really have to make terrible trade-offs right now. But at the same time, if we have young people who've been pushed just a little more to the edge of their independence, I think we produce a generation that's much more ready to lead and ready for the world of work that we know is ahead. Now, I tend to agree with that. I tend to think there's more skills than you find in school, as we said. Uh, but are we concerned that we will have this gap in education levels and that will affect you know, getting into colleges and going through courses and graduating when they should? Well, the, what, we, what we've always called the achievement gap or the opportunity gap is very likely to be exacerbated by this moment, at least in the short term. But at the same time, higher ed is being disrupted. You know, the class of 2020 um, and 2021 couldn't really sit for the SAT or the ACT in quite the same way. And we knew higher ed had been looking at abandoning some of those test score uh, entry requirements anyway. Now, I think there's this fascinating question, which is, what did you do with the summer of 2020? Uh, which becomes a really interesting entry question, I think, for knowing which students are college ready or which students are work ready. Um, and so while I think it's absolutely right to be worried about the gaps in the short term, uh, there's a lot we can do as parents. And many of the best parenting interventions right now don't actually cost much money or any money at all. We're watching people spend sixty and $70,000 on high-priced tutors 
Uh, and where I guide them instead is to say, think about how you're scaffolding what's happening for your young people. Think about the kind of learning they are exposed to because you're working from home. Um, and think deeply about how you want them to experience this moment. All of those things are free. It's true. One of the things I wonder about a lot is the gaps, the gap between the people who can get the tutors and can't. So the kids, some kids achieving more than others, and as well in the workplace, the parents who are able to adapt and have good employers and those that don't. Because, you know, North America, really no country has been great at this, giving everyone the same opportunities. We've watched this happen with incomes the last few years. And I've been concerned about, you know, the haves and have nots in terms of gig work and the like. How bad do you think this will make the situation? I, I do worry a great deal about two things when you mentioned gig work. So there was a statistic this summer that said 40% of U.S. citizens who were making under $40,000 were unemployed. And so when we look at unemployment numbers, we tend to think about that as um, equally spread across our country, and we know that that's not true. And so the, um, the level of uncertainty and economic instability uh, in the quartile of families that was already struggling is very significant right now. And we know that Gen Z was already a generation that was um, impacted by the impressionable age they were in the last recession. We're seeing young people say, why would I spend the money on higher education? You know, I've seen my own family struggle. I've got to really just focus on jobs that provide immediate income. I think we'll see a generation of kids making different choices because of the instability, both of um, a little over a decade ago and of right now. Do you really think that we'll have fewer people going into colleges and university programs? Well, at least in the short term, we are seeing young people say, you know, my, my spring 2020 virtual experience was not particularly high quality. Why would I, if paying for college is a stretch, why would I pay for college when it's also going to be virtual? So at least in the short term, I do worry we'll see a decline in enrollment. Now, where we may see that uptick is in community college. So community colleges always do better in recessions. Uh, community colleges, in many cases, at least here, have had um, a fairly successful time converting to higher quality virtual programs. And we've got a generation that, that's saying, I'm not sure I want to spend four years to get to my earning potential if I can do that more quickly. Now, that gets to a, a technical term around prior learning credits and how do we uh, help young people navigate their way through higher ed in what we call a competency-based way, where you can prove your mastery, prove your readiness um, at, a, at a pace and time that makes sense to you versus having to wait until the class is over to get the credit. So if we can see both higher ed and the American high school move toward that more competency-based system, I think we'll see um, people feeling more like they're going to get their money's worth out of their experience. But I wonder if it'll work for them. I mean, I hope it does. But we've seen coming out of every recession up to now that people who lose their footing have a harder time the rest of their career. So this generation, G Generation Z and, you know, really the one before that, too, are going to be disadvantaged, the end of the millennials. And as well, we haven't really seen that people who haven't got extra education have done particularly well. And I wonder if that can possibly change. Oh, well, absolutely. We, we know that for our statistics here, that while the four-year diploma isn't necessary, some kind of post-high school certificate or credential absolutely is. You know, Colorado's economy is booming. Um, 
but the the skills gap is really significant. The other thing I worry a great deal about uh, that's inside what you're referencing is the youth unemployment rate. So just in terms of civil society, when the unemployment and, and, and unenrolled rate of young people between ages of 18 and 24 spikes, it's highly correlated with all sorts of um, you know, social unrest. That's, that's not often the kind of potentially productive social unrest we've seen this summer, but really much less productive. And so we're very worried, it's not, very worried about youth unemployment and are thinking a great deal with our state's government about what's possible possible around a national service corps, um, other ways to just get those young people providing services into their communities. Well, it's time for creative solutions for sure. Let's get back to the parents a little bit because, you know, we're talking about the future with kids and future work lives, but right now there's a lot of adjustment going on. I always thought when this started that this is probably going to be good for women because we are talking about different ways to work and not necessarily being at work. As this has gone on, I've heard a lot more talk that this pandemic is bad for female workers. Which side of it are you on? I, I wish I were uh, I wish I were with meeting your optimism in the first part of what you offered, but in general, we're seeing more of the latter. We're seeing more working women take the brunt of the childcare dilemma. And then when confronted with, wow, if there's no school and really the best thing is for one of us to just stay home this year, um, that more often, as we know, is the, the person making the lower wage, which more often in traditional married families is going to be the working woman. And so um, we're, see- we're seeing some real concerns and some real setbacks there. And will they be long term, do you think? Well, I think it depends on how quickly schools reopen and how disrupted education really is. I think if people start to say we like this much more flexible education model, we have to question what happens when we lose that um, that institution of childcare that we've relied on K-12 for so long. You're a former teacher, and I'm not asking you to speak for all teachers, but looking at it from that point of view, how do you think it'll be accepted by teachers and the educational establishment if we decide to rethink this model longer term? You know, it's so interesting. I say this with so much love for my (laughs) my fellow educators, um, and I am holding up a mirror to myself when I make this comment. I think in many cases, and there are wonderful exceptions, but in many cases, our education workforce is full of people who loved school the way school was done before and chose to work in an industry that they had deep familiarity with from the time they were five, six, and seven years old. And so there is a new mindset that in our work at at CEI, we often have to build with educators where they have to become comfortable with the fact that education is one of the only industries that has been sort of protected from disruption. Uh, for most of the last two decades, and that education, frankly, is a system that that values and encourages compliance and order and structure and a little nostalgia when every other industry has moved on from those things, uh, or most other industries have. And so there's quite a mindset shift, I think, that has to happen with most educators. Now, our cutting edge educators are ready for this, right? They're excited to think about their profession being really disrupted. They're excited to feel like they can be more innovative. Um, But it will be a a major disruption for one of the largest industries uh, in terms of employment. A lot of disruption ahead. I I think we're at the beginning of it. Are you, well, 
the beginning, hopefully, of what will be a good experience ultimately. Are you an optimist about the kids, at least? Do you think they'll come out of this strong? I really am. Like I said, I mean, this generation already spikes on resilience and compassion. I think this is a moment where we can drive scaffolded, thoughtful independence for young people. I think in in families where work has moved into the home, young people are being exposed to the world of work in a way they never were before. Um, you know, frankly, in my house, I wonder if that means they won't choose education or policy because it doesn't look quite as interesting as maybe they thought it did when it worked when it was far away. Um, but they're seeing, for example, us use our communication skills. They're watching us collaborate collaborate across you know lines of ideological difference on Zoom calls, and so they're they're getting exposure to worlds of work and to skills that we can talk about with them that they that they didn't used to see. And while the disruption will be hard, they're also going to be a, a group of young people who get to experience um, much more individualized pacing in their education and some of the advantages of that flipped classroom. So there's a lot to worry about, but on the whole, I remain an optimist for this generation. Rebecca, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Rebecca Holmes is the president of the Colorado Education Initiative. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you did enjoy this conversation, please remember to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can. It will really help other people find us and join in this discussion. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco, and you can, of course, send an email or comments. You'll hear how to do that at the end of this. Thanks, as always, to Stokely Audio for making it all sound so good. Bye. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.